Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds, the podcast. I hope you are having a great weekend and a great start. Uh, welcome to our Monday morning podcast where we are going to be talking today to Dr. Bryce Dooley. Um, Bryce is an anesthesiologist I have the pleasure of working with and she's super badass. She is a D-A-C-V-A-A, she got a lot of letters after her name. She went to vet school at St. George's University. She did clinics at Cornell and then did an anesthesia residency at Ohio State. So let's get talking to Dr. Dooley. So welcome, Dr. Dooley. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So Dr. Dooley is going to talk with us today. Um, Her and I have been working together for about a month now, and we are going to talk today specifically on induction agent choices and some things that you guys can look out for in your practice, maybe if you're used to using propofol, but you just heard about alfaxalone, or you're still rocking the ketamine Valium, what are the best choices to make as far as induction agent goes for your practice? So take it away, Dr. Julie. All right. So I think it would be good to start with propofol. I think that's probably the drug that most of you guys out there are the most comfortable with. Um, and as you know, it's it's a GABA agonist. It has a really rapid onset, um, IV only. But don't worry if you do get it outside of vein based on its pH and its lipid. It's probably not going to cause tissue necrosis. Um, but one of the big things with propofol, as much as it is a great drug, some of the side effects that it has. So remember that you give a big bolus of propofol, you're going to get a lot of hypotension, you're going to get, your patient's going to be apneic, so it's super important to get that airway quickly. You can also see what's called either myoclonus or dystonia, where the animal is kind of trembly and shaking, those sorts of things. But overall, for your for your everyday healthy patient, um, I think propofol is a great choice and, and a great drug for everyday use. So Bryce, can I ask you, because a couple people have asked me in uh, when I'm out at veterinary conferences, if they have an animal that has a lot of food allergies and is really, really sensitive, I have heard out there that there may be some connection between propofol uh, because it contains an egg protein. Sure. Is that really a concern? It seems like that's not really a super concern. And there's also the concern of the lipids in it. So if you have a patient that has really high cholesterol, should you use it in those patients either? If you have another choice, perhaps go with the other choice. But in terms of if it's your only choice, you'll be okay. It is cleared so, so quickly, um, not only by the liver, but by some extra hepatic pathways um, that you should be okay all right, cool. And another thing, is there an advantage to having the propofol 28 or the longer lasting propofol as opposed to the regular propofol that... Um... Sure, of course. So remember, propofol has no preservative in it. And once you open that bottle, it really should be used within the day. So depending on how busy you are, maybe you're going to end up not using the whole bottle and losing some money there. So there is this propofol 28 Um, which has a bacteriostatic benzyl alcohol in it. Um, And it is good for 28 days once you uh, do open the bottle. There is the concern that there's some toxicity for cats. Can they metabolize um, this, this preservative? And it is not labeled for use in cats because of this, but it seems that all the studies that look at single injection doses of propofol 28 to cats, they have not seen any of the negative side effects Um, If you are a place that plans to put your patients on propofol CRIs, I wouldn't suggest the propofol 28 in in CRIs in cats. 
Um, but otherwise, I think it's a good it's a good investment. It works just the same as propofol um, and seems to have good safety both in dogs and cats as single injection. All right, cool. So I would say that probably like, you know, 80% of clinics are using propofol. It's so common. Um, but a lot of people are now on the Alfaxalone tip, right? Alfaxalone is a new kid on the block. It it's is. It's super cool, hot. Yeah, people love something new, something trendy. Um, so yeah, so Alfaxalone has recently come back to the market. Um, similar drug was released back in the 70s and had to change a little bit to get re-released recently. Um, so we have Alfaxalone as we know it. Honestly, it is very, very similar to propofol. Um, people tend to think that it has these much safer margins, those sorts of things. But um, in terms of both its mechanism of action, it is a GABA agonist as well. And in terms of its cardiorespiratory effects, it is going to be pretty similar to propofol. You know, it all depends on how you titrate it and dose it. But you will see a drop in blood pressure, uh, a drop in their respiratory rate, some, some hypoventilation or apnea post induction. I do think that one of the big differences between alfaxalone and propofol is we can use alfaxalone intramuscularly and that can be used really to our advantage for sedation and say we have a really mean cat who's really not happy to see us but we need to get an echocardiogram on this cat and alfaxalone IM can be a good option for sedating this cat without causing a ton of changes to the echocardiographic variables um, that we would that we would go ahead and, and get after being able to state them. But do be cautious. Just like Propoflow 28 has come out, um, Alfaxalone actually even had a shorter half-life than Propofol. Alfaxalone, the regular, once you pop the bottle, had to be used within six hours. Um, and now there is a 28-day Alfaxalone as well. Uh, but do be cautious if you're going to mix that drug into a syringe with another drug, as sometimes you can see some precipitation. Um, so that that's that's a little bit concerning. So sometimes you'll have to maybe do two different injections, or just at least keep that Alfaxalone um, separate. Yeah, I feel like we've definitely seen a precipitate form if we've tried to mix our propofol, yep. um, sorry, our alfaxalone with a benzodiazepine. Yes. That seems to happen all the time. Yeah. So we just do two separate ones now. Yeah. All right, so propofol, alfaxalone. Now let's say I'm working at a clinic and I don't have either one of these drugs. All right. I'm still kicking it old school. Oh, what do we got? The, the cat valve oh. way. Um, you know, I think... Uh, ketamine Valium, induction, or even just ketamine kind of gets a bad rap because it is considered so old school. Yeah. Uh, but you and I were talking, and in some cases, this is, it's not a bad rap. It's it's a decent induction agent. I agree. So, yeah, like you were saying, ketamine has kind of got this bad reputation. Maybe just because Alfaxalone is like so new and trendy and hot that things like ketamine have kind of gone out of fad a little bit. But there's definitely a place for ketamine. I think it's a fantastic drug. Um, works differently than both propofol and alfaxalone. Um, it's an NMDA antagonist and sort of it's that dissociative anesthetic, which is why they, they tend to maintain their reflexes. So they'll have a corneal palpebral, uh, laryngeal reflexes will be maintained, but their brain really isn't interpreting any of the sensory information that can come in. Other things that you'll see with ketamine is they'll maintain their respiratory rate. They typically don't go apneic after a ketamine induction. And you get, as opposed to alfaxalone and propofol, where you get 
sort of a, a hit to your cardiovascular system, ketamine can actually increase your blood pressure and increase your heart rate through a sympathetic stimulation. So there are are times to use ketamine, there are times to not use ketamine. Um, so could you give us a sample of like, when would I not want to use ketamine? Absolutely. You know, I would be like, oh man, hey, I'm going to use the propofol. Let's stay away from a ketamine induction in this patient. Yeah, so some things that come to mind are, say a patient where we really don't want to increase their myocardial oxygen demand. We don't want to make them tachycardic. We don't want to make their heart work harder. So I think a, a good indication for that one for avoiding ketamine, is what I mean, um, would be, say, a cat with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's maybe a case where I would not use an anesthetic dose of ketamine and get that increase, um, make their heart work harder, basically. That's not what we want to do. But a case where I think ketamine could work very well is, well, not only, I think it can work very well in an everyday case. If you have a dentistry procedure, that's going to take a long time. Ketamine is a great induction drug along with, say, midazolam or diazepam. Gives you a nice, good, smooth anesthetic, good pain control, and it will keep uh, your patient very comfortable throughout. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think ketamine is a really good option as just a tiny, tiny touch dose if you need it for something that's that's quite sick, say a septic abdomen. Um, and I think we can talk about this later a little bit but as just an adjunct on top of, of other drugs that we could use to really spare the cardiovascular system from any major hits that it could take. Um, I think ketamine can be protective in that case. Another thing that I think ketamine gets a bad rap for is this whole increase in intracranial pressure and seizure patients, that, if, that this is absolutely a drug to avoid in any of these situations. And that is kind of coming under scrutiny in terms of, say, ketamine causes an increase in intracranial pressure, so you would never give it to a patient who has seizures. These studies that were done, their study methods were a little bit questionable and, you know, from the 70s. And <laughs> so currently, ketamine is actually being looked at as a drug to stop refractory seizures otherwise, say in the ICU or something like that. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so it's definitely a, a drug with a lot going on. It has a lot of a lot of different side effects, but I think it's very, very good in patients with painful procedures, chronic pain, and again, those patients that could maybe benefit from a little cardiovascular boost like a septic abdomen. Perfect. So I just want to hit on one more induction agent because some people might have this lurking, this drug lurking in the back of their cabinet. They've seen it and they think, well, you've never used this before. Um, but if you work in anesthesia, you know you have used this before. And I'm talking about etomidate. So oh, yes. can you talk about that a little bit just in oh, case somebody sees it or gets asked to use this? When would we use a drug like etomidate? Sure. So etomidate is one of those drugs, like you're saying, probably not everybody has it. And even if they do, they don't know that they have it. Uh, so it's an interesting drug, like propofol and alfaxalone. It's also a GABA agonist. But interestingly about Atomidate is there's really almost no cardiovascular or respiratory depression that comes from this drug. So you think, well, it's, it's a great drug. I'm going to get it for all of my patients. But unfortunately, there's, there's quite a few side effects that come with Atomidate. And some of them, it's things like rigidity. They become very, very stiff. 
after you give it as a bolus, they maintain really strong laryngeal reflexes, so intubation can be a challenge. They can vomit and become nauseous. It does actually burn on injection because of its osmolality and can even cause some phlebitis. And then probably one of the riskiest side effects of Atomidate is the fact that it does suppress, um, it does do adrenal cortical suppression. And at just after a single injection of Atomidate, the cortisol production can be, or levels can be quite low in patients for at least 24 hours. Uh, so even though you'd think, hey, I've got a septic patient and I don't want to cause any issues with the cardiovascular system, Atomidate's really not going to be your friend uh, because of these adrenal cortical suppressions and can actually be damaging to those patients. Um, other things to consider is that the volume you have to give to patients can be quite large because it is pretty dilute drug. Um, whereas propofol and alfaxalone, you got about 10 mg per mil. Atomidate's only 2 mg per mil. Mm. So you get a lot of volume. You got to push it quite quickly in order to be able to intubate. And if you do decide to use it, always give it with a little dose of midazolam right beforehand to avoid some of those those effects that we're talking about, the rigidity and the strong laryngeal reflexes, those things. Cool. Um, all right. So here's what we're going to do, because we like to do this on the podcast, is I like to present the anesthesiologist or whoever I'm talking to, the technician, uh, with a case. Okay. Because I think people are listening uh, and they're thinking, hmm, I might have this case actually walk in. So for you, here's the case I'm going to present with you, since we're talking about induction agents, but we'll talk about the whole anesthesia picture. Let's say I have a four-year-old Labrador. Okay. Um, it ate something it shouldn't have, maybe a rawhide or a toy. It's, it's something it's got stuck in there. We've confirmed it on an ultrasound. The dog comes in. It's really punky, um, you know, super dehydrated, just not doing right, painful in the abdomen. We're pretty sure that we're going to – well, we're not sure. We are taking it to surgery. So that's where we're getting an anesthesia involved. So – we're going to take it to a surgery, and what are your recommendations for a dog like this where we think, okay, we have a GI obstruction, could possibly even have a perforation, septic abdomen. What are some things we need to consider anesthetically for that patient? Sure. So like we were saying before, one of the biggest concerns is avoiding a big cardiovascular respiratory hit to these types of patients. They're already so, so compromised, not only from being dehydrated, but from the other complications, being vasodilated um, and having, having these issues going on. So for these guys, especially if they're really, really sick, we could even go off, off the four that we've covered here and do sort of what we call a rapid sequence induction. And it involves, say, a large dose of fentanyl with a larger dose of midazolam. You can include a little lidocaine in that. And sometimes when patients are very, very ill, especially say a perforated abdominal mass or obstruction of some sort, that's actually enough to be able to intubate them and get them on some CRIs, uh, minimal, minimal gas needed, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, if if it turns out that your large doses of fentanyl, midazolam, and a reasonable dose of lidocaine aren't enough, a drug I would add on top of that just for a little top-up would be just a tiny bit of ketamine, say about a half a mg per keg, uh, I should say milligram per kilogram, <laughs> of ketamine IV, again, because we really don't want to be 
giving a big bolus of, say, propofol and causing massive amounts of vasodilation, decrease in myocardial contractility and apnea. These patients are already high, high risk, so we're going to try and maintain their hemodynamics really as best as we can without any huge fluctuations. Right. So I think that that's been one of the things, at least for me as an anesthesia tech, being in this field for like 15 years, I remember when propofol came out and propofol was this, propofol is the safest drug in the market. So safe, we're going to use it for everything. And now once we understand what it's causing hemodynamically, that, you know, for these super critical patients might not be the quote unquote safest choice if we have other choices. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Um, So, Bryce, one last question, and this is not specifically anesthesia-related, but what I like to do with all my guests is, since this comes out on uh, Monday, and uh, we're considering it Mentor Monday, um, we'd like you to give a shout-out to your anesthesia mentor. Oh, oh gosh. This is so unexpected. Let's see. (laughs) So, I actually think I have a few, uh, but I would say someone that I think had a really big impact on me was, in my residency training, one of my mentors was Dr. Richard Benarski, over at The Ohio State University, taught me a lot about anesthesia and always made the workday enjoyable. And I just have an immense amount of respect for him. Hi, Dr. B, if you're out there. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dooley, for being on the podcast. I am certain that I'm going to hit you up for other subjects so you can be uh, recorded again in this small office (laughs) inside our veterinary hospital. Uh, Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you again. All right. Thank you.